0: Hey there, and welcome to episode 22 of IoT This Week. I'm your host, Craig Smith. So the topics we have on tap today um, include farmers jailbreak their tractors, ubiquity kicks it old school, ISPs want all your info, and COBOL and FORTRAN make the news, and much more. So let's get started. All right, so first up a day under IOT involves John Deere and their tractors, and more specifically it involves the software that runs on these tractors. So this is something I've brought up in past podcasts where John Deere basically is told um, the folks that buy their tractors that they actually can't modify them at all because they technically they're saying that they license the software um, and don't actually own the software that actually runs on the tractors. So... The tractor owners are resorting to downloading Ukrainian firmware hacks, apparently. Um, So like I mentioned, um, John Deere, the reason why they don't let the farmers modify the software is because they're saying that they license it. So it's copyrighted. Um, One of the things the U S copyright office has actually stated that is that farmers are allowed to legally, they're allowed to jailbreak the tractors. However, Um, No one is allowed to actually create a tool that can modify the software. So that kind of falls under the um, not um, creating a tool or something to circumvent DRM, I believe. So it's the same way with like writing tools that can uh, crack DVDs and that sort of thing. Um, So just to make matters worse, John Deere has actually also added language into their end user license agreement that prohibits modifications, um, third party repairs. It also says that John Deere is not liable for or responsible for any crop loss or lost profits, et cetera, if the software breaks. Um, And then, you know, to make matters even worse, in order to actually, for the farmers to actually start their tractors, they actually have to accept the EULA before the tractor will start. So this is all kind of just, really, it's insane. When you think about these farmers, a lot of this tractor equipment costs, could easily cost half a million dollars or more. And the fact that they can't actually do anything to this thing they paid half a million dollars for is just, is crazy. So, you know, like I said, they're finding their farmers are actually going to Ukrainian to get firmware hacks. So apparently what the farmers can do is they can actually go out there, join a forum somewhere um, where Ukrainians who are actually able to crack the software on the, their end, because um, what I read was that the enforcement of DRM cracking really isn't as strong as it is here in the U.S. or other countries. So for whatever reason, the Ukrainians uh, probably saw a business opportunity there to crack the John Deere software that runs on these tractors, and they're actually making it available to um, farmers who have bought the John Deere tractors and are kind of desperate to either repair the tractor or they want to make some kind of modification for, you know, whatever they might be using that particular tractor for. Um, And incidentally, this is... um, something i'll actually bring up in the next story um, there's several states that are actually introducing right to repair legislation which will basically give farmers um, a legal right to uh, repair their you know half a million dollar tractors they've purchased but of course this is being opposed by companies like um, apple and big agriculture because they want to maintain you know apple a lot of times, if you want to fix something with Apple, um, you got to take it to the Apple store because if you do anything outside of that, it'll break the warranty, et cetera. And it's the same thing, um, kind of with John Deere tractors. Um, if you want to do it legally, right now, you basically have to like go find somebody who's authorized repair person. And in some places, um, it may they you know it may take weeks or whatever for them to actually be able to get an appointment to actually come out and repair the tractor. And obviously weeks is too long. If your tractor's broken down and you're trying to, you know, harvest crops and so forth, that doesn't really, that's not really an option. But one thing you think the uh, John Deere would actually have noticed a lot of times or a lot from the uh, movie in movie industry, the record industry and so forth, when it comes to DRM is that basically it's kind of a losing proposition to try to, you know, fight people on trying to, um, Protect copyrighted, um, whether it's software or movies, et cetera, whatever. It's just kind of it's it's a losing battle in the end to um, do any of that. So, as I mentioned, um, <clears throat> several states are considering right to repair um, legislation. So, this would give the folks who um, own the devices, or it would allow repair shops to actually fix these devices. I suspect without voiding the warranty. Um, Because I think if you take, there's a lot of people that like fix broken screens on Apple devices and other um, mobile devices. um, But I think if you go and have it fixed somewhere else, um, if you try to bring it into the Apple store after you've done that, they'll basically say that the warranty has been voided and they won't actually touch the thing after that. So as you ma- might imagine, companies like Apple and Samsung um, and then lots of other companies who basically have a small number of authorized shops um, to fix these devices, they're obviously opposed to this because they want to you know, kind of maintain their monopoly on, on the repair business. But hopefully if this legislation gets put in place, um, it'll allow for like, uh, repair shops to do, um, some similar, do some similar repairs that they actually do at the Apple store or wherever and actually not void the warranty. So one example that came up was that Nikon, um, back in about 2012, they actually stopped selling replacement parts to independent camera repair shops. So now the only place you can actually get um, repair parts for Nikon is like the, the authorized shops. And apparently there's only like 20 of those, I think. Um, and I think they were talking about in the U.S. So trying to... Um, Go to actually a repair shop for your Nikon camera is going to be a little tough. There's only 20 of those, um, even though they probably have mail-in where you can mail in the camera to get it repaired. You know, there's always the risk of it gets lost in the mail or it takes a long time to get back and that sort of thing. Now, I mean, for me, if for an Apple iPhone, for example, um, if I break the screen, I'm really only going to take it Apple take it to an Apple store to repair it because that's just me and I only I trust them to do it right. But I mean, some people want to be able to take it to probably like a local repair shop and not bother with the Apple store for whatever reason. But actually one of the um, Nebraska, um, the whole state only has one Apple store. So obviously if you live on one side of Nebraska and your phone breaks, you don't want to spend, you know, the whole day or however it takes to drive across Nebraska to the Apple store to get it fixed. And even, like I said, you don't want to mail it in either because who knows what will happen with them and it can take a long time to get it back. So obviously at that point, a local, some kind of local repair shop that you could take your phone to get it fixed without voiding the warranty um, would be be great. Now, if anybody's messed with actually like Apple, uh, Apple devices, for example, you'll notice that there's, they usually have special screws and so forth and you have to buy, you can still buy tools to open them up, but you still end up having to go and buy specialized tools for them. So instead of using like a uh flathead screwdriver or whatever, um, you have to buy something specialized. Uh, but honestly, if the companies are doing that, um, a lot of times they'll say, well, you know, it's because we want to keep people out of there so they don't uh, mess with stuff. And, you know, it's not really... So people who don't know how to repair stuff, they can't get into it. But really, in the end, I think it's about keeping people out so they can basically charge them for repairing um, at their specific, like Apple, for example, or Samsung. They can actually charge to have those repaired at their various stores. Um, but we'll see how this legislation goes to, um, give people or companies the right to repair, um, without uh, voiding warranties. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it goes. And then under the, what you were, what were you thinking category? Um, Ubiquity who makes net get net gear, sorry, network gear, um, Some of their equipment um, can actually be hijacked by a URL. And apparently what they were doing, um, and this is something actually that we noticed in some research we did a while ago on various IoT devices, um, that they were all using um, either old versions of web servers or old versions of SSH, that sort of thing. But apparently Ubiquity in this particular network year was actually using a PHP build that was 20 years old. Yep, that's right. You heard it. 20 years old. So, yeah. Um, no idea why they did this. Well, actually, I do have an idea. They were probably trying to do it on the cheap, but still, they could have, you could still get a PHP build and not really cost you anything that was, um, you know, a little newer than 20 years old. So, really, no idea why they did it like, like, like this. But, um, and this kind of goes back to, you know, something I had mentioned in the. Um, previous podcast and FTC thinking that the IOT industry can self-regulate so if that you know what ubiquity did isn't something that's uncommon if you look at other IOT devices in the firmware that's running on these things um, so why the FTC would think they could self-regulate when this is the kind of stuff they do um, who knows. And then next up, and this is something I thought was rather interesting. So there's a whole white paper on this, actually. So it's something called IOTA. And like I said, there's a whole white paper on this. Um, I actually didn't get into it, the whole technical side of this, um, as far as the white paper goes. But basically, this is billed as cryptocurrency for the IOT industry. So I guess if you have millions and millions of advices trying to take some sort of payment, you can actually use something that's um, kind of based on Bitcoin um, and the blockchain. So it was basically created as a der- derivation of the block t- blockchain technology that I mentioned is used for Bitcoin, uh, but they've actually added some functionality into this. So instead of like making micropayments, which is common when it comes to Bitcoin, they're actually incorporating nano payments, which are even smaller, obviously, than micropayments. So this would, in effect, um, this would work with like when you have, if you have millions and millions of IoT devices taking little bitty payments here and there, this would be even better because the payments would probably most likely be even smaller um, and fit into a more like the nano payment category. So like I said, it's something interesting um, to look at and see if this actually gets any traction anywhere in the IoT industry. I mean, I'm not sure... Um, if I've actually seen any IoT devices that are actually taking any form of payment right now, but I'm sure there's probably something maybe in the works already out there I haven't seen. But anyway, it's called IOTA. So uh, take a look at that. And then something I'd mentioned again, this is something I brought up in the last podcast um, in regards to healthcare devices. So it's pretty interesting the types and number of things that are coming out um, under IoT in the healthcare. Um, but this thing's actually it's called virtual rehab. So basically what they do, so if it's somebody who's like injured their leg or something like that, they actually put these sensors on their legs and then the sensors are ac- actually connected to a mobile device. And then so the mobile device is reading where the sensors are. So in effect, the um, mobile device can actually help the patient with their daily exercise routine or whatever um, that it might be. So 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 something like after orthopedic surgery or something like that, they'd actually be able to use this application uh, virtual rehab, along with the sensors on the on the whatever is connected to their leg, um, and actually the virtual assistant would actually be able to kind of guide them through their rehab uh, exercise routine. So instead of having a person, um, actually right there, you could use the uh, app. So I really think IoT in healthcare is actually a spot where a lot of good things can happen. Um, but if you know anything about the InfoSec Uh, world when it comes to healthcare it's it's pretty it's a pretty fragmented ordeal because there's different um, regulations for different pieces of the healthcare industry and so forth and none of them are really on the same page from what i've seen so when you're talking about um, iot devices and healthcare you really need to be careful um, that you actually don't end up doing more harm than good given what some of these things are doing Um, but in the end though i still think um, there's lots of there's more good that can come than harm um, from having IOT in healthcare and then last but not least under IOT um, Paul over at security ledger he did a really good write-up on on some issue on an issue that actually relates to IOT and infosec and it's got to do the, the reason why this kind of came up um, there was a Air Force some Air Force personnel or something like that actually leaked some sensitive info and it was actually leaked Via a network attached storage storage device that was exposed and vulnerable um, on the internet. So apparently, as part of the I guess the investigation that Paul did, um, this is actually a pretty huge problem because people are buying all these network attached storage devices and hooking them and connecting them straight up to the internet. So they're not um, configuring them securely before they actually hook them up to the internet or the devices are just vulnerable in the first place. And it's probably a lot of the vulnerabilities are probably falling into the same um, scenario that a lot of other IoT devices fall into where they're just not updated very regularly. Um, the manufacturer just puts them out there and then it doesn't really bother about bother with updates and that sort of thing. Um, one of the things that was mentioned in the article is that they, you know, they kind of look for some of these devices in Shodan, and if you don't know what Shodan is, it's basically a search engine for just all kinds of stuff that's connected to the internet. So, you know, they did a search for, like, NAS devices, and of course, you know, hundreds of thousands or probably millions of them are probably out there connected to the internet. So if you've got a NAS device and you've got it hooked up, connected, or connected directly to the internet, then yeah, make sure that thing's locked down um, and that the you know, it doesn't have any vulnerabilities, and if it does have vulnerabilities, that the manufacturer of the device is actually updating on a regular basis. Otherwise, um, you could have some things let loose on the internet that uh, you didn't really intend to have out there. All right, so moving on to InfoSec, um, you've probably seen this story. The Senate actually voted to allow ISPs to collect information about you, Um, so that's information that's, you know, whatever your ISP is, Comcast or Cox Cable or whatever it might be, Time Warner, um, they're basically, at least as far as the Senate vote goes, so far they're going to be allowed to basically collect whatever, you know, information they can about you um, as you pass network traffic um, over their networks. So I'm a little split on this issue. Um, part of me thinks that the ISPs, I mean, really, they should let you know what they're collecting and give you the option of either opt-in opt to opt-in or opt-out of that collection. Um, fortunately, more than likely, they probably won't um, because there's a lot of value in collecting data, that, data on you so they can sell it to marketers or advertisers or whatever. Um, but then there's also the other part of me that thinks that if you're passing unprotected traffic over an untrusted network, which is really what you should consider your ISP as an untrusted network, um, you know, if you do that, pass that unprotected traffic over their network, then you kind of get what you deserve. Um, the, the current bill still needs to pass the House for approval um, before it gets to the President um, for him to either, you know, sign off on it and make it law or veto the, or turn it down or or whatever, um, but really, either way, either you know whatever this um, particular bill ends up going, whether it's actually um, put into law, you really should um, use a VPN um, whenever you're on the internet as much as you can, um, just to stop. I mean, there's always some way, someone down at the end of the stream that can probably that'll be able to see your data. Um, but either way, um, at least. You know, if you're using Comcast or whatever your local ISP, at least they won't be able to see what you're doing. And then also make sure when you do have a VPN running that you're actually passing all the traffic over the VPN. So because one of the problems that um, you run into is that you might be passing, you know, you're browsing to Google.com or Facebook. While that traffic may be passing it, passing through the VPN, um, the DNS request um, happen before you actually get to Facebook or whatever actually go out over the um, unencrypted VPN to probably your local um, isps DNS server so even still they can still tell where you're going if you don't actually tell the VPN itself to pass all the traffic um, through the VPN but like I said either way um, you know whether the, the bill actually allows isps to collect the information or or it ends up not getting enacted um, it's just a good idea to actually use a VPN anytime you're on an um, untrusted network. And then I thought this next door was actually a pretty interesting idea, and we'll see how it goes. I mean, I think in the long run, this will make things better as far as ATMs go. Um, I mean, I'm sure whatever the whatever ends up happening with this, they'll probably um, – somebody will always find a way to abuse it or whatever. But um, anyway, so Wells Fargo, uh, for their ATMs, they're actually st- – going to start introducing or have already introduced um, a way to actually get money out of the ATM um, using phone codes instead of actually having to um, swipe your card or put your card into the, the card reader um, and then punch in a pin code. So basically it's kind of it's going to be similar to um, like the one-time codes that are produced for two-factor authentication. So what they're going to have, so it's going to be an app. It's not going to be over SMS. It's going to be through their app. Um, It'll actually generate a code. Um, And then you have to actually combine that code with your PIN on the ATM to actually get the money out. So there won't be any need, I don't think, to um, actually swipe the card, um, which will be great because it'll take away the uh, physical contact that you have with your plastic card with the ATM um, and reduce the... um, risk of getting your card skimmed. Um, and actually there's something, I mean, they don't do a code, but there's, um, when I actually, at my local gas station, um, I can actually pull up to the pump. Um, it'll, and tell it which pump I'm at and all through their, um, app and then actually use Apple pay for the pay for the gas. So i actually don't have to swipe my card or put it into the card reader at all at the gas station, which obviously gas stations are a really big problem with having skimmers. Um, So I really like that what they've what this particular gas station's done, where you just use the app, so there's no need for um, swiping a card. So again, that reduces the um, risk of uh, having your card skimmed. And then next up under Infosec, um, I thought this was like really cool: is the uh, double agent attack, um, where basically the attacker has the ability to inject. Um, any DLL into any process that's running under Windows. So this attack, it affects all versions of Windows. Um, And basically due to the nature of the attack, the uh, security researchers from Cybellum, um, they were actually able to, and I think they were, yeah, they were actually able to actually do a proof of concept with this. They were able to hijack the process um, for antivirus of all things. Um, Again, this is able to, uh, you know, inject a DLL in any process, so antivirus is just a process running on Windows, so they were actually able to hijack the process for antivirus and, you know, basically have the antivirus do what they wanted to. So, again, um, like I mentioned, this affects all uh, versions of Windows. Um, However, there's kind of a, it's not really a, I guess, I don't know if you really consider it a fix or not, but anyway, there's apparently, um, there's a way of avoiding this, and the current double agent attack uses the application verifi- verifier in Windows um, to actually uh, be able to f- perform this attack, but there's actually something newer. Um, it's called protected processes. Um, this is something that's um, I think it's been in place since Windows 8.1, so. If you're doing um, or running or writing applications on Windows, then what you really want to use is the protected processes instead of the application verifier uh, which this double agent attack is able to utilize. Um, and I think currently the protected processes is is actually only implemented in Windows Defender at the moment. Um, and again, I think Windows Defender, if I remember right that was something that, that uh, Microsoft introduced way back in uh, Windows 8 point one. And then um, the next one, Cisco finds a zero day in the uh, Vault 7 leak. I'm sure you've probably seen the Vault 7 um, document leak on uh, WikiLeaks. Um, but apparently this zero day for Cisco devices affects 318 of their products. Um, the vulnerability affects the cluster management protocol that they use. Um, and it can it can only be exploited via Telnet. Um, so one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, do you actually have Telnet running, and why? Um, so it, it can easily the this particular zero day that was in the Vault Seven leak can easily be it can easily be avoided by simply using SSH instead of um, Telnet. And really, you shouldn't be using Telnet in the first place. Um, hopefully, you're not. But if you do have it enabled um, on this particular one of these particular you know 318 different um, Cisco devices, um, do disable Telnet and switch over to SSH to avoid this um, particular zero day. And then I thought this uh, next story was uh, really interesting um, because it brings COBOL and FORTRAN back in the news. So apparently some researchers uh, looked at systems that were running COBOL and FORTRAN. A lot of these, a lot of the legacy systems that are out there that are actually still running this are usually government systems. I mean, banks used to lo- banks used to run a lot of um, COBOL. I don't think they do as much. I mean, if you remember back in the Y2K days, there was a lot of um, demand for COBOL programmers um, back then to uh, fix the Y2K issue. So the researchers, basically, they said a lot of people just assume that because these systems are so old, um, there's nobody around that knows how to hack them or actually really mess with them. So in that aspect, they're kind of not... They're more secure than some of the newer stuff, basically but just because it's old, which is kind of a silly way to look at it and think your stuff's secure just because it's old. I mean a lot of times it might be, maybe there isn't, maybe there's not a lot of people to know about it. Uh, but as soon as somebody does find about it, find out about it, then uh yeah, then you're kind of in a world of hurt at that point. Um you know, a lot of the a lot of these legacy systems like uh, that are running COBOL or Fortran. Really, they weren't built with encryption in mind. I mean, they had they had levels of security, but it's not the levels of the security that that we really have today or that we need today. So, kind of, you know, as long as these systems stay hidden, um, you know, maybe somebody nobody bothers them. But as soon as they get found out, they really don't put up a, much of a fight because, again, there's not the levels of security. Um, that we have in newer systems, um, and also encryption not used. So anyway, if you know of systems that are running, um, still running COBOL or FORTRAN, then uh, you probably want to definitely have somebody look at those from a uh, security aspect. And then last but not least, and this one is just utterly ridiculous, um, there's a link in the show notes to it in case this uh, actually disappears. But uh, FedEx, apparently they've got a page where they will actually pay you $5 or really they'll take $5 off your next shipment to um, enable or, you know, reactivate Adobe Flash um, in your browser. So, yeah, um, all I can do is shake my head at that one, really why they would do something like that. I mean, take the time to actually put in something besides Adobe Flash. um, But really, FedEx, um, yeah, you should do something a little better than that. Okay, so moving on to the tech part of the um podcast. So first up, um Cogent, who's one of the major um network carriers on the back end for most of the internet, a good chunk of the internet. Um they've actually blocked, they've been blocking Cloudflare's um some of Cloudflare's Cloudflare's IPs because of um piracy concerns. So they were actually In their defense, they were actually ordered to block these, I think it was two IP addresses um, by a Spanish court. But unfortunately, this isn't just affecting, you know, people um, in Spain, I would assume. But, I mean, it's basically affecting anybody who's trying to connect to these IP addresses that are hosted by Cloudflare or through Cloudflare. So if you don't know what Cloudflare Cloudflare is, they're basically a CDN um, provider. Um. Which I mean, it, uh, which they have a lot of um, legitimate sites, but they also have some of the pirate sites behind those too. And this is, like I mentioned, this is why these particular IP addra- addresses were being blocked because they were um, sites that were hosting pirated content and so forth. Uh, but one of the things that usually happens um, whenever these blockades are put in place. Um, And as it happened with the Cloudflare, the IP addresses were shared by multiple sites. So even though they were targeting two sites, they actually, I think they took out, you know, 10 or more other sites um, that really weren't part of the court order. So, you know, they really blocking IPs and this sort of thing. I mean, they've been doing this with like the Pirate Bay for years and years and years. I mean, basically, it's just a game of whack-a-mole that really doesn't do anything because they pop up later. So I don't know what they're gonna do. They're eventually just gonna block all the IPs on the internet and just not let anything on there, but they're gonna have to come up with a better way to um, attack this particular problem. <coughs> Excuse me, I mean, a lot of times, what they're really looking to do is basically go, okay, yeah, we blocked it. I mean, a lot of this is done for political reasons. They block it, um, kind of pat themselves on the back, say, nice job, you know, we blocked this site, and then move on, even though, you know, five minutes later, the site's back up. Um, so let's, you know, Hopefully, we'll, hopefully these guys will come up with a better way at some point of, you know, when they want to take a site offline that's for whatever reason, um, especially if it's under a quarter, which is really what it should be, um, then there's an effective way to do this, do that, and not um, have a lot of collateral damage. Um, then next up, um, actually, in the show notes, uh, there's a link to, well, there's a link to all these articles, um, but I put up a link just because I thought it was just like super cool Um, there's a video of Mars, um, that was actually stitched together by someone and they stitched this thing together by hand. I think it took them like three months to do it. Um, but yeah, it's just a crazy, um, video of the surface of Mars that they put together and it's really just worth a look. And you may have seen this particular story a while ago. Tesla has solar roof panels. Um, that they're they're going to start making available in April. Actually, there was a story a while ago that they were going to start doing these things. But these things look like they're really cool, um, and especially if they work, and also they're cost efficient. You know, they it's not something that's like, yeah, it's solar, but it's going to cost you a bazillion dollars to put it on your roof, then you know, nobody's really going to do that. Um, but hopefully these things are cost effective because, I mean, it doesn't take much to think about how much just in the United States, just how much roof surface area there is. And if you were able to, you know, put some kind of, um, electric generating solar tiles on all these roofs, um, that was cost effective, that would be a whole lot of energy that was added to the grid, um, just coming from roofs. I mean, a lot of retail stores, um, I think Amazon and some other things, they've actually started adding solar panels to their, like, um, warehouse roofs because they're so massive and that sort of thing. Um, but again, this would be something and the tiles actually don't look that bad. So this would be great for, again, if they can make this cost efficient and they can actually roll this out in some kind of, you know, a lot of get it under production, roll it out in scale and so forth. Um, just a really cool idea by Tesla. Um, if they can make it work. And then last but not least under tech, uh, motherboard, I saw this article, um, Motherboard has a quick guide to VPNs. I thought I'd add this in here because of the other story, um, you know, with ISPs potentially being able to grab any of the data that they can about you as it passes over their network and sell it or whatever. Uh, Motherboard had a great uh, little quick guide to uh, VPNs. Um, one of the things I did, they uh, so one of the things in the article, they have some of the normal stuff like, you know, this particular uh, VPN provider doesn't do logs, that sort of thing, so they were recommending a couple things. But one of the other things I like they brought up in there is actually spinning up your own VPN. So whether that's on a service like um, Amazon Web Service or DigitalOcean or Linode or something like that, um, bringing up your own VPN is actually, I mean, it's great to learn about v- VPNs, and you can gr- you can bring up one of these um, VPN servers Um, on DigitalOcean, at least it's, you know, it's five bucks a month. So when it's a VPN you've put together, so you know what's going on with it. Um, You can basically trust this one a little bit more than some of the other ones that you pay for, even though, you know, they may be stating that they don't do logs and all that sort of thing. Again, you'd have control over it. So um, really glad they mentioned that. Um, I mean, that's what I do on my side. I have my own VPNs in various spots. Um, But again, just to, you know... Quick guide, and, again, it's just a great idea to use your own VPN um, when you can um, when you're on the Internet. And then, finally, just some random things. Um, So one of the things I was excited about this weekend, uh, Formula One Racing is back. They had their first race in Australia. I won't tell you who won or how it went, um, but if you are a Formula One Racing fan, they're back for the season. Um, Google Talk is being retired soon, so if you use Google Talk, you're probably going to have to uh, look to something else. Um, and I mean, this is typical of Google where they have some project running for a few years and then they kind of just i think they just lose interest in it and then they just kind of retire it. Um, the last I read, if you're looking for a Nintendo switch, uh, which is a new game console, um, it was back available on Amazon. I don't know if it still is. It may have sold out again. Um, but honestly, what I've heard from this thing is that if you really want to play Zelda, it's great for playing Zelda. Um, and that seems to be about it. So it's like 300 bucks, at least in the U S. Um, and really the only worthwhile game, at least of what I've read is Zelda on there. But I mean, what they're going through right now, um, some of the, um, uh, downsides of the console. It's pretty typical of first iterations of game consoles. Um, so it still might be worth checking out. Um, and then I don't know if you if you saw that Apple made some announcements last week about some new iPads and stuff. I'm really some of, I yeah I'm just kind of baffled at why they're so excited about the latest iPad. I mean that they I think they dropped the price down. Um, it's got some of the same specs as some of the specs as same of the old some of the older iPads. Um, I think they might have slightly upgraded the processor, but again I don't see uh, what the excitement is all about. And then finally, um, apparently SoundCloud um, is borrowing more money. Um, hopefully this will be money to keep them going, um, in order for them to actually become profitable, profitable. Um, but I hope they stay around because that's basically where I host a lot of my, or all my podcast files are actually hosted from SoundCloud. So here's hoping they stay around for a while so I don't have to put them somewhere else. Um, but yeah, that's about it for this week. Um, again, you can contact me at Craig 28 on Twitter and you can email me at podcast at IOT this week for any questions or suggestions or whatever. Um, but that's it for this week. Um, uh, we'll talk to you next week and have a great day.